You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Russian and Ukraine operators exchange cyber attacks. Wiper malware contained, but a potentially resurgent threat. DDoS in Romania. Flashlone caper hits a DeFi platform. Coca-Cola investigates Stormus breach claims. CISA issues two new ICS advisories. Kayla Barlow on cleaning up the digital exhaust of your home. Our own Rick Howard speaks with Freddie DeJure and George Webster on reporting cyber risk to boards. And a declaration for the future of the internet. Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe. I'm Trey Hester with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, April 29th, 2022. Wired summarizes Ukraine's operations in cyberspace and notes that even the Ukrainian operators are surprised by their defensive success. Kyiv's cyber operations have most prominently included messaging the families of Russian soldiers killed during the invasion. It's a controversial tactic that has been criticized as gratuitously cruel. Ukraine says it has a humanitarian dimension as well. The families, Kyiv says, are certainly not going to get the truth about their sons from the Russian authorities. CERT UA, Ukraine's cybersecurity authority, has warned that distributed denial of service attacks against Ukrainian targets continues. Quote, the government team for responding to computer emergencies in Ukraine, CERT-UA, in close cooperation with the National Bank of Ukraine, has taken measures to investigate DDoS attacks, for which attackers place malicious JavaScript code, brown flood, in the structure of the web pages and files of compromised websites, as a result of which, the computing resources of computers of visitors to such websites are used to generate an abnormal number of requests to attack objects. URLs of which are statically defined in malicious JavaScript code, end quote. The most alarming Russian operations have been deployments of destructive wiper malware. The effects of such attacks, however, seem to have been quickly contained. Fortinet offers a historically informed summary of wiper malware and its employment in cyber conflict. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, yesterday updated its alert on the wiper malware Russia has deployed during its hybrid war. Quote, this advisory has been updated to include additional indicators of compromise for Whispergate and technical details on Hermetic Wiper, Isaac Wiper, Hermetic Wizard, and Caddy Wiper destructive malware, all of which have been deployed against Ukraine since January 2022. End quote. Additional indicators of compromise associated with Whispergate are provided in an appendix to the alert. Ukraine has attracted considerable hacktivist support. Hacktivism is usually ambivalent and seldom decisive, 
But in this case, the anonymous collective has achieved a nuance level of annoyance through doxing Russian organizations. Security Affairs says Anonymous has released files that appear to have come from Russian firms. First, Electro Centro Montaz, which provides electrical equipment to Russian electrical power generation and distribution centers, a 1.7 terabyte archive containing 1.23 million emails has been posted to DDoS secrets. Second, PSCB Petersburg Social Commercial Bank was hit by Network Battalion 65, an anonymous affiliate. 543 gigabytes of 229,000 emails and other files have been posted to DDoS secrets. Finally, Aliette, a customer broker that serves the fuel and energy sectors, has lost 1.1 terabytes of data, including more than a million email addresses, all of which have also been posted to DDoS secrets. Balkan Insight reports that Romanian government websites came under distributed denial-of-service attacks today. Bucharest characterizes the attacks as symbolic and well within the government's ability to contain and mitigate them. According to the record, Deuce Finance, a decentralized finance platform, has acknowledged that it's lost more than $13 million to online theft this week. The record describes the incident as a flash loan attack. Quote, Flash loan attacks involve hackers borrowing funds that do not require collateral, buying a significant amount of cryptocurrency to artificially raise its price, and then offloading the coins. The loan is paid back, and the borrower keeps the profit. The Wall Street Journal says that Coca-Cola is still investigating the Stormus Group's claim to have compromised company networks. Coca-Cola is being cautious, but many observers are skeptical. Stormus, which presents itself as a Russian criminal gang and which appeared around the time of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has done a fair amount of woofing about what would amount to a privateering campaign. But others see them as scavengers, as people who pick up old data from dump sites and then claim to have obtained them from artful hacking. The investigation will tell. In the meantime, Tech Monitor quotes recorded futures assessment, which is that Stormus is known as, quote, a bit of a clown show, end quote. Recorded Futures Alan Liska says, quote, That doesn't mean they didn't successfully pull off the attack. It is possible. But I think many researchers are going to need additional verification before taking this group at their word. End quote. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, issued two Industrial Control System advisories yesterday, covering Delta Electronics DIA Energy and Johnson Controls Metasis. And finally, the U.S. and 60 other nations yesterday issued a Declaration for the Future of the Internet. A White House fact sheet says the declaration aims at securing the following principles. 1. Protect human rights and fundamental freedoms of all people. 2. Promote a global internet that advances the free flow of information. 3. Advance inclusive and affordable connectivity so that all people can benefit from the digital economy. 4. Promote trust in the global digital ecosystem, including through protection of privacy. And five, protect and strengthen the multi-stakeholder approach to governance that keeps the internet running for the benefit of all. Neither Russia or China have signed on. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. 
Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our own Rick Howard sat down with Freddie DeJour and George Webster to discuss reporting cyber risk to boards. Here's Rick. I'm joined by Freddie DeJour, an old friend of mine, the CEO of Freddie DeJour BV and formerly the head of CERT EU, and George Webster, the chief security architect at HSBC. Freddie, George, thanks for coming on the show. Nice to be here. Pleasure. You two belong to something called the Cyber Risk Metrics Working Group, and the group has just recently published two versions of a study called Reporting Cyber Risk to Boards, Control, Measure, Report, Repeat. One version is for CISOs, and another is for board members. So, Freddie, can you explain what the Cyber Risk Metrics Working Group is and what was the goal of the project? Yeah, sure. So, the the project was set up um, about a year and a half ago, and because we saw a gap in the community in um, the way that people report um, in a quantifiable manner, in an understandable manner, how people in the community report cyber risk to their boards or to their regulators or to their supervisors. And this gap uh, is apparently across the board, uh, geographically, um, everywhere companies have the same kind of challenge and people have difficulties to overcome that challenge. And because we saw that gap, we thought it may be a good idea to bring together um, practitioners from the field and to have them share with each other what worked well in their environment in a, in a trust group and then extract from those exchanges um, the essence of what we think could be useful for the broader community. And the outcome of that discussion in this working group is the two white papers that have been published just recently, three weeks ago. So, George, I was happy to see that you all recommend reporting risk to the board as opposed to other low-level metrics. And I was also pleased to see that you showed that there is a ton of metrics that the CISO might be interested in that will never be shown to the board, but that are essential for the CISO's risk assessment. Can you explain the thought process there? And Freddie kind of elaborated a little bit on it. Um, but it's whenever you're running a business, right, you need to be able to, to speak the language of the business or to function in that way. So one of the things you want to do with the board is you want it to be able to, in you know, just clear, concise way, 
explain to the board what are the key things? Like, what is the risk that they're facing? Are they making the right investment? You know, are they secure and in, in can the company operate? But at the same time, you really don't know where the attackers are, which means, you know, you have metrics galore in cybersecurity, which are all incredibly valuable and incredibly important, but they help drive the business and they help drive the business, in this case, cybersecurity, to make, you know, effective and, you know, pragmatic choices on how they're actually operating and running. So you really do have to have that separation. One is how do you effectively operate cybersecurity? And the other is how do you explain to the board and justify your budget and make sure everything works? So at the, I work on a podcast called CSO Perspectives where we talk about first principles in cybersecurity. And one of the key tenets is boiling down everything that we do as cybersecurity professionals down to the essence, the atomic thing that we're trying to get done. And what I think it is, is reducing the probability of material impact to our organizations due to a cyber event. And all these board metrics, these metrics that you're talking about, flow into that equation so that we can give a, you know, a generic sense to the board about what the risk is to the business. And, uh, and so that's an assessment we tell them. But we can use all these other low-level metrics to feed into our calculation about what we tell the board. Is, is that the idea you're conveying here to the readers of this report? Yeah, it's, it's hard, right? Like if you think of cybersecurity and if you think of metrics, you, you don't know where the attacker is coming from, which means fundamentally you don't have a denominator. You can't really say this is how much profit I'm going to generate. And it's being able to take all of those metrics together and try to distill them into something that is explainable to the board. So like you can talk, for instance, have I installed the antivirus product where it needs to be? Is it the right package? Does it have the right signature pack? Is it operating effectively? You know, all of a sudden you have like seven different metrics. You can't present just to the board. Here's all these metrics for antivirus. The CISO needs it. They need to understand is the business functioning, right? But the board doesn't. The board just needs to know like this risk that I have, is it being mitigated? Am I okay, right? And so that's kind of the essence of it. It's how do you take all those metrics, those hundreds of metrics you have, and distill it down to something that's consumable and, you know, the board can understand. So that's good stuff, guys, and we're going to have to leave it there. That's Freddie DeJour, the CEO at Freddie DeJour BV, and George Webster, the Chief Security Architect at HSBC. Their group is called the Cyber Risk Metrics Working Group, and the study is called Reporting Cyber Risk to Boards, Control, Measure, Report, Repeat. Thanks for coming on the show, guys. There's a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you get access to this and many more extended interviews. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber.
And joining me once again is CyberWire contributor Caleb Barlow. Uh, Caleb, it's always great to have you back on the show. You know, I want to touch base today about uh, some of the, the things that build up over time. I think you refer to it as digital exhaust in your home. Uh, I, I tend to be a bit of a pack rat myself uh, when it comes to these things because it's so easy to hold on to things. But that's probably not the best way to go about it, is it? Well, my, my house has a digital exhaust like a big 18-wheeler semi-truck. There's a, there's a lot <laughs> pouring out, and uh, right. every now and then you want to clean it up. Well, I mean, here's the thing. You know, there's a lot of reasons why you may not want people to know where you live or what your home looks like, or worse yet, you know, if you're like many people that have bought a home in the last five years, all the pictures of the inside of your house are posted publicly on the internet. So right. how, how do we get rid of all that? And, and believe it or not, it's actually doable. Hmm. Go on. Okay. So let's start with, you know, first off, just to set the the kind of the baseline here, it's probably nearly impossible to get rid of all records of where you live, but yeah. we can definitely reduce kind of the overall impact. I mean, tax records are always out there, but interestingly enough, I mean, especially as we all get a little older, one of the things to think about is what happens when your day comes and you punch your ticket. You know, having your house in your name directly isn't the smartest idea for tax purposes anyway. Hmm. So, you know, if you've ever talked with an estate attorney, they're going to encourage you to put your home in a trust so that it becomes easier to pass that along to your children or your heirs. And of course, when you put the name of your home in a trust— you don't have to name it the Bittner Family Trust. You know, you can call mm. it something a little more obscure. So mm -hmm. when those tax records show up, it's harder to find out where you live. Now, of course, <laughs> oh, you got to sell your house to do this. So this isn't <laughs> the easiest piece of advice I'm going to give you today. But okay. Yeah. Go on. Okay. So let's talk about something a little easier. So let's say you did just buy a house. And all those pictures of the inside of your house are on places like Redfin, Realtor.com. You can actually make those go away. And I think it's a really? great idea because, you know, the last thing you need is a future employer or the ex-girlfriend going and digging through where does he live, right? What's it look right. like on the inside? So if you go to those sites, you can actually claim the home as your own. It's a simple click. You put in a little bit of information and then you're claiming the home, and then you can remove the pictures. Now, if you want to have a little more fun in the more advanced class, they also let you add pictures. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't think they have any way to figure out whether the pictures you might add are legit. So there's some really great stock images out there. I added a picture of a <laughs> castle as my house. Why not? Right. Right. You know, so make the inside of your house bigger than the outside. Look, if you're going to go <laughs> figure out where I live, then you're going to have to, you know, see some stock images and it's much mm -hmm. better than it really is. I like the subversive nature of that. That's very good, Caleb. We might as well have some fun with this day. Okay. <laughs> now, in addition to that, we've talked in this show before about the importance of changing your Wi-Fi SSID. And yeah. I'm not going to get into all the details now. You can go listen to those past episodes. If someone knows your SSID, which your phone's broadcasting all the time, it's really easy to figure out where you live. Change your SSID and change it to something like a car name or something that is not unique so you can't look it up on a map. Hmm. You can also remove the image of your home from mapping services. And, and this was a fun one to play with. So literally Google Maps and Bing, you can remove the image of your home. 
So right, I've seen where you can get it blurred. Yeah, you get it blurred. So literally yeah, you go yeah. out and, you know, they all have a little setting of report this. And one of the options on reporting it is his home. And apparently it's irreversible. But the next thing you know, your home is blurred, which, you know, there was a time period where the my house on Google Maps had a giant dumpster in front of it because I've been doing some work in my house. But also <laughs> no one needs to see where I live. Like, get that stuff out of there. So those are a couple of really quick things you can do to kind of clean up your digital exhaust on where you live and make it a little harder for someone to cyberstalk you. Do you think we're we're ever going to uh, reach this uh, utopia that people imagine where in order for these things to happen at all, they're going to have to get permission that it's going to be opt-in rather than just vacuuming up everything and posting it and, and it's up to you to ask them to remove it? Dave, we live in the United States. There's no way. <laughs> May, right. Maybe there's a European utopian with GDPR, but there is uh-huh. no way, right? I mean, yeah. this is unfortunately going to be a constant battle. And I think, honestly, it's something we have to educate our kids on early on. Every now and then there are these moments in life where you've got to go back and clean up your digital exhaust. And, and you know, one of those moments, when you graduate from college, make it all go away. Everything Mm -hmm. you've done up to that point, there is no need for it to be out on the internet. Clean it out of what's publicly accessible. No future employer needs to be seeing your photos from your eighth grade soccer team, right? Get them out of there. Or worse yet, whatever else you got in there from your fun time in college. No, that's true. I've run into that of hiring folks who are recently graduated and, uh, you know, do a Google search and, and interesting photos come up sometimes and you try to try, try not to make that too much of a of part of your hiring decision. But, you know, I mean, it, it crosses your mind, right? Well, and let's face it, everybody's looking at it. So yeah. clear, you know, again, right back to the same point with your house, too. You can tell a lot by looking at where somebody lives. You know, creepiest thing is you can even see the inside of the house, right? Clear that stuff out of there. There's no reason for that to be out of there. And have a control over who you are and what people see about you. Yeah. All right. It's good advice. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out this weekend's episode of Research Saturday, where Dave Bittner sits down with Vikram Thacker of the Symantec Threat Hunter team to discuss their work on Daxon, stealthy backdoor designed for attacks against hardened networks. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Datatribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week.